Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, 
on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 24th of January. Hope you're all well. We had some EFL Cup action last night as Chelsea gave Middlesbrough a hiding. 6-1 at Stamford Bridge. The Blues, therefore, 6-2 winners on aggregate. A Johnny Housen own goal. An Enzo Fernandez tap-in. An Axel de Sassi tap-in. Cole Palmer, Cole Palmer again, and Noni Mudeki putting them 6-0 up before Morgan Rogers pulled one back. Burrow with one of the dumbest game plans I'd ever seen. One of the dumbest ideas I've ever seen is Michael Carrick deciding to go to Stamford Bridge and play like Pep Guardiola's Barcelona with a number of players more suited to Tony Pulis's Stoke. Burra trying to play out from the back cost them three goals yesterday. Maybe you could argue four. <clears throat> and it was just very, very strange because they had the 1-0 lead. They were going there in a position of strength. They didn't need to go and try and match Chelsea as a football team. They needed to go and park the bus and defend and boot it long and have their forward players chase it into the corners. And instead, they just went there and they gifted Chelsea goals, absolutely gifted them goals. There's not one of those goals that you'd look at and go, that's just a brilliant piece of play. Like, yes, Chelsea played very well. I'm not taking that away from them. But Burr's defending was just so, so poor, so naive. I was really disappointed with Michael Carrick last night because I have been a big proponent of his. And I do think he's got a good future in the game as a manager. I think of that generation of England players, especially the midfielders, you know, him, Gerard, Lampard, Scholes, he's definitely the one that I think has the, the best managerial future. Uh, as an aside, when you get time, do go and listen to the latest Stick to Football podcast from Gary Neville's overlap with Frank Lampard on. Uh, he has no idea that he's a terrible football manager. Absolutely none. As far as Frank Lampard is concerned, he's a good football manager. It's the damnedest thing. But Michael Carrick, I think, can be a really good manager. But he needs to learn from games like last night that when you're going away to a superior team where there's a large talent gulf, and you do have a lead, you do everything you can to protect that lead. You don't offer it up on a platter the way they did. So Chelsea through, and they will face the winner of Liverpool and Fulham. That game takes place tonight at 8pm. Obviously, Liverpool hold a 2-1 lead from the first leg. This one tonight is at Craven Cottage. Uh, injuries for Liverpool, 
a bit of a concern, but they are getting Andy Robertson back. So that will be a help. Fulham are without a couple of key players because of AFCON, as you know, Liverpool are as well with, with uh, AFCON and the Asian Cup. But Liverpool are better better situated, really, to, to deal with their absentees than Fulham are. Fulham don't have anyone to step in and replace Alex Awobi and bring that pace and power and dynamism that he brings to the midfield. So that's a blow for them. Um, they they do lose some physicality without Calvin Bassey, even though Issa Diop and Tosin Aderabayo are both big physical centre-backs. They're not as strong and as brutish as Calvin Bassey. And I, that's the thing I do like about Bassey is he does have that raw physicality. Tosin's 6364, he's very good in the air, but he's he's slender. He's not going to boot forward players around the place. Diop is kind of the same. Now, he can sometimes get into the more physical battle, but at times then he'll lose his head and he'll lose focus on what he's doing. Bassey never has focus to begin with. So his whole thing is going out and booting players up in the air, but it's what works for him. And the other thing with those two big centre-backs is if you get nippy forwards in and around them, they can struggle a little bit on the turn. Plus, Tolson is out of contract in six months. How committed is he really to the Fulham cause? He's made it pretty clear he wants to leave. He wanted to go in the summer. They extended his contract due to a clause in his contract, not because he wanted to leave, not because he wanted to stay. So he clearly wants out. Diop spent most of last season, remember, sat on the bench. He can't have been too happy about that. He's back in now, but for how long? I mean, I kind of feel like if a manager leaves you sitting on the bench for most of a season, it's a pretty straightforward line of thought that he maybe doesn't rate you all that highly. Now, they could play Tim Ream. Again, he's a bit slower. He's older. But he does have the physicality. It'll be interesting to see what they do. Liverpool, I'd expect to go fairly strong. Probably the same team that took on Bournemouth. Potentially, then, they'll rest players for Norwich at the weekend in the FA Cup and then go strong again for Chelsea and Arsenal in the league. Um, right, let's go and check in on AFCON. And then we'll check in on the Asian Cup. So we are in the final round of games. And some things are getting decided. So in Group A, Equatorial Guinea hammered the Ivory Coast 4-0 to top Group A. Nigeria beat Guinea-Bissau 1-0 with a Opa Sangante goal. To finish second. So Ivory Coast, the hosts, obviously, finishing third with three points, potentially putting themselves at risk of not getting through. Because should Namibia get a draw in their game and Zambia get a draw in their game, we would see the Ivory Coast miss out on the knockout phase. And we've already had one shock in terms of a team being eliminated. Now, we'll get to that. Uh, in Group B, here we go. 
Mozambique 2, Ghana 2. Ghana were 2-0 up through two Jordan Ayew penalties going into stoppage time, and Mozambique came back to get a draw. In the other game, Cape Verde and Egypt played at a 2-2 draw. Cape Verde topped the group on seven points. Egypt finished second on three points. Ghana finished third on two points with a minus one goal difference, and they have been eliminated. Ghana should be one of the strongest teams at the AFCON. When you look at the, the talent, particularly the midfield and attacking talent, but then you actually dig into the squad and you realize that Kamal Dean Suleimana wasn't called up, called up. Abdul Fatawu wasn't called up. Not really sure why. Thomas Partey wasn't called up. Now, I know he's been injured, but he is back in training. So why not call him up? Tariq Lamptey is out of the squad. So then you start to look at it and well, the defense isn't great. You've got Daniel Amarty, he's decent. Alexander Jaiku, he's decent. Gideon Mensah is pretty good, but hasn't become the defender he was expected to be. Dennis Adoy, for some reason, is still in the squad. Salisu's in the squad. So that's, you know, that's a decent group. It's not great. Mensa, Salisu, they're the kind of strong points of that back line. Not familiar with the goalkeepers. Um, Joe Wallacott does play for Hibernian, but I don't think I've ever seen the guy play. Um, I'm sure I have at some point. In the midfield group, you've got Andre, Andre Ayew, who at 34 is well past his best. You've got Kudus, obviously. You've got Samed, who's very good, plays for Lens. Joseph Pansil's a pretty good player. After that, then it becomes a little bit dicey. In attack, you've got Ayu, you've got Semenyo, you've got Inaki Williams, Ernest Nuama, Jonathan Sowa, I'm not hugely familiar with either. Like I, I just can't imagine <clears throat> that any of the players who should be in the Ghana squad are playing in their homeland at this point. You've got three players playing in the Ghanaian league. I'm sorry, if they're playing in that league at 24 and 26, they're not good enough to play for your national team. They're just not. And there are far better players who've been left out. So Ghana are out. In Group C, Senegal finished top. They beat Guinea 2-0. Cameroon finished second. They beat Gambia 3-2. A late Christopher Wu goal, giving them the win. They were actually 2-1 down with three minutes left and heading home. And Gambia were going to go through in third place. But Cameroon get the two late goals. Through they go. They finish second. Guinea finish third on four points. So Guinea get one of the best third, the best third place uh, spots. Group D, Angola beat Burkina Faso 2-0. And Mauritania beat Algeria 1-0. So Angola topped the group, then Burkina Faso. Mauritania finished third. Algeria finished fourth. In Group E... We have Mali, top, South Africa, second, 
Namibia third and Tunisia bottom. Last games being played today. South Africa play Tunisia. Tunisia need the win or they're gone out. And Namibia play Mali. Mali are through one way or another. In Group F then, Morocco are top. Democratic Republic of Congo are third. Zambia are fourth and Tanzania are fifth. So what we have going through, confirmed, Equatorial Guinea and Nigeria, uh, Cape Verde and Egypt, Senegal, Cameroon, Burkina Faso and Angola, Mali and South Africa. Oh, they're not confirmed. Mali and South Africa aren't confirmed. It's just those from group A through D. And the third place teams, Guinea are guaranteed to be through. Mauritania are guaranteed to be through. But Ivory Coast and Namibia are still at risk. Because Zambia can jump them. Now, obviously, Namibia can jump South Africa or jump the Ivory Coast. Ghana are gone. So that's the one group where there will definitely not be a third place team. So Zambia take on the Democratic Republic of Congo. If that game were to end in a draw, they would go above Ivory Coast on goal difference. Democratic Republic of Congo also have two points, same as Zambia. So both would end with three. And both would have a zero goal difference if that game ends in a draw, whereas Ivory Coast goal difference is minus three. Namibia take on Mali. Mali are through, so they can rest players. But a draw is good enough for Namibia to jump the Ivory Coast. So we are looking at the very real possibility of Ivory Coast getting dumped out. If Ivory Coast and Ghana go out, that like that's got to be one of the biggest surprises in the recent history of major international tournaments, especially one like AFCON, where you only really have five or six real contenders. Like the, the Ivory Coast squad, again, you look at it and it's just loaded with talent. Yahia Fafana looks a pretty talented goalkeeper. In defence, <clears throat> I don't like the way the defence has been lined up. I don't really understand what the manager was thinking either with his decision to leave Abba Garcia at home. He should be the starting left-back. But you've got Aurier, Kasunu, Willy Bolly, Wilfred Singo, Evan Ndika, Usman Diamande and Ishmael Diallo. Now, I don't know why Diallo is in the squad overseer. I really don't. Uh, I'm not sure why Gislan Conan is in the squad either. He's not, he's not great. I mean, that back four should pick itself. Single at right back, Sia at left back, Kasuno and Diamande in the middle. That should pick itself. The midfield then, you've got Max Gradle, Frank Kessie, Jean-Michel Seri, Ibrahim Sanger, Seiko Fafana, like loads of really good options. Then in the wide areas, you've got Jeremy Boga, Simon Adingra, Nicola Pepe, 
Kareem Kanate can play wide. And then through the middle, you've got Halar and Kwame. You've also got Jonathan Bamba for a wide option as well. I, I don't know why they're not like streaking through this group with ease. I, I don't understand how they've had such trouble. Now, part of it is a manager making bad decisions. Like he left home a couple of players that definitely could have helped them. But more than that, like Nicola Pepe played as the false nine in a recent game. Like, what is that about? I'm sorry, there's just no way that's your best option. If they go out, it'll be entirely on the manager. Simple as that. Um, on to the Asian Cup, where I believe we are wrapped in the group stage. Group A, Qatar are through. Tajikistan finish second. China and Lebanon are out. Group B, Australia, Uzbekistan and Syria are all through. India go out. Group C, this is my favourite story in international football. Iran are through. United, United Arab Emirates are through. And Palestine are through. Palestine drawing with the United Arab Emirates and then beating Hong Kong 3-0 to earn their spot in the knockouts. That is the best story in international football. Group D, Iraq are through. Japan are through. And Indonesia are on the cusp. Vietnam are out. Group E, Jordan are through. South Korea are through. Beiran on the bubble, Malaysia are out. Oh, we do have one one group that play their last games tonight. Group F, Saudi Arabia are through, Thailand are through. Oman play Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. If either of those teams win, they could potentially find their way through. I'm an idiot. Group E does also the final games. Uh, South Korea will play Malaysia and Jordan will play Beiran. Um, Jordan do top the group at the moment, but Beiran have a chance to, uh, still have a chance to get through automatically. But we're in fairly good shape. Fairly good shape. Uh, We know a couple of the couple of the knockout games. Iran will play Syria and Tajikistan will play the United Arab Emirates. Those are confirmed um, knockout games. Do we have anything confirmed for the AFCON knockouts? We do. Nigeria will play Cameroon. That should be good. Uh, Cape Verde will play Mauritania and Equatorial Guinea will play Guinea. So there we go. We've got three set there. Knockout football is always good. Even in tournaments that you maybe don't have great interest in, knockout football is always good. There's more pressure, more excitement. Referees tend to do madder things. Every little action matters. So AFCON and the Asian Cup both shaping up nicely 
and I'll see you after this. I'm going to go and boil my head for a second and hopefully come back able to talk and read properly. Right, welcome back. So, it is Wednesday, which means it is Nostalgia Day. I will be getting back to doing the the power ranking type lists position by position. Um, I've gotten a little bit sidetracked on that. We have done goalkeeper, right back, left back, center back, sweeper. And I think we did a central midfielder. Did we do wingers yet? I'd have to look. I think we've done both wings. I think we've done both wings. So it's just defensive midfielder, kind of 10 and striker. I could be wrong about the wingers. I feel like we did one. We did one wing. I'm sure if I go through one of my notebooks, I'll find where I wrote stuff down uh, in my usually well-filed manner. Um, today's nostalgia, though. So I love Italian football. Absolutely adore it. Because I grew up in an era where Italian football was the best football. Serie A dominated world football for 20 years. From 86 to 06, Serie A was the dominant force. Italian clubs were just a cut above. There was more money in the league, somewhat due to corruption. All of the top players wanted to go and play in Serie A. You had both Milan clubs, Juventus, both Rome clubs, Sampdoria, Fiorentina and Parma, all at different times having great teams. And I've talked about a few of them on here. We've been over the Saki Capello era Milan. We've been over the Ericsson era Lazio. We've talked about Capello's career as a whole. So we've touched on Roma. We've touched on Juve under his watch. We've gone through Fiorentina and Parma in that era. Today, I just wanted to take a kind of more of an overview of Syria in that time. So today we're going to do 86 to 96. And next week we'll do 97 to 06, if that makes sense. So we'll split it in two. Um, but we're going to begin here. Why? Why did Syria rise to such prominence? And the simple and unfortunately tragic answer is the Heysel Stadium disaster. Because prior to that, Italian clubs had floundered in Europe. We hadn't seen an Italian club win the European Cup since AC Milan beat Ajax 4-1 in 1969, up until Juventus beat Liverpool at Heysel 1-0 in a game that should never have taken place. English football and German football had been the dominant forces. If you look at what happened after Milan win their European Cup, so first things first, Feyenoord beat Celtic in 1970. Then Ajax run off three in a row. That's the golden age of Dutch football. Then Bayern win three in a row. Then Liverpool go back to back. Then Forest go back to back. 
then Liverpool win again, then Aston Villa win. So you've got six years in a row where the European Cup is won by an English club. We hadn't seen that before. Then Hamburg win, then Liverpool win again. Seven out of eight years, English clubs won the European Cup. Four for Liverpool, two for Nottingham Forest, and one for Aston Villa, with Hamburg as the only club to interrupt the run. They, of course, beat Juventus in that final. We didn't see dominance like that really until the Spanish clubs, Real Madrid and Barcelona, kind of took hold. But even their best run didn't match six years in a row. Spanish clubs won the European Cup five years in a row, with Real winning four of them and Barca winning one, but never six years in a row. That is the single most dominant run any country has had over this competition. Even right back at the start, Real win five in a row, but they don't get to six and no other Spanish club wins it off the back of them. They win five, Benfica win two, AC Milan win their first, Inter Milan win two in a row, Real win number six, then Celtic win, then United win, and then Milan win their second. So at this point in time, we have four European Cups won by Italian clubs, two by Milan, two by Inter. Then in 1985, Juve win their first in the most tragic of circumstances. But then we see the Italian clubs start to have a much bigger influence in this competition because even we weren't even getting Italian clubs regularly in the final. Up until the early 80s, there'd only been five losing Italian finalists. Fiorentina lost in 57, Milan in 58, Inter Milan in 67, Inter again in 72, and Juve in 73. Then Juve lose to Hamburg, Roma lose to Liverpool. Italian football is on the climb. It's getting stronger. We're seeing more and more players go in that direction, but it is still number two to England until Heysel, until the ban on English clubs. And that then enables the Italian clubs to really kick on. And because of the lifestyle and culture, it's also a far more appealing place for players to go and live. So we'll start in the 85-86 Serie A season. We'll start with this year. Well, actually, we'll go... We'll go 85 to 95 today, and then we'll go 96 to 06 next week. So, 1985-86 Serie A season. Off the back of winning the European Cup, Juventus win the Serie A title. Roma finish second. Napoli finish third. Torino fourth. Fiorentina fifth. Inter sixth. AC Milan 7th. Now, 
these are all clubs, obviously, that would play huge roles in the future of Italian football, barring Torino. They're the one club that really didn't kick on with the rest of them. There's no great Torino season during this time. All the other clubs and others that weren't mentioned there, like you look down that table, there's no Lazio. They're not in Syria. You look down that table, there's no Parma. Sampdoria are finishing 12th in a 16-team league. They were to come. And Torino, unfortunately, wouldn't be able to keep pace. In the Coppa Italia that year, Roma claimed their sixth sixth, um, title. Sampdoria, the losing finalists. Uh, Two-legged affair. Samp won the first leg 2-1. Roberto Mancini with one of the goals there, but Roma won the second leg 2-0 and won the competition 3-2 on aggregate. Relegated from Serie A, Pisa, Bari and Lecce. And your top scorers, Roberto Pruzzo of Roma with 19, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge with 13 for, for Inter, Michel Platini with 12 for Juventus, Diego Maradona with 11, Daniel Passarella with 11 for Fiorentina. Uh, notable that he was a defender. Um, and Aldo Serena with 11 for Juve. We move on to the European competitions of that year. No Italian representation in the European Cup final. No Italian representation in the UEFA Cup final and no Italian representation in the Cup Winners Cup final. But onwards we go, 86-87. This is a historic season, primarily because this is the season Diego Maradona decides to, having just won the World Cup, decides to remind everybody that he is the best player on the planet and he is the one coming for Pele's crown as the best player ever. Napoli win the league title. Not only that, they win the Coppa Italia as well. In the Coppa Italia, they beat Atalanta in the final. 3-0 win at home, 1-0 win away. There's no comparison They are the top dog in Italian football. They win the league. Juve are second. Inter third. Hellas Verona fourth. Milan fifth. Sampdoria sixth. Roma seventh. Fiorentina finished tenth. Torino are eleventh. And dropping out of the division, Brescia, Atalanta and Udinese. In the... European Cup, we have no Italian representation in the final. The same is true of the UEFA Cup, in which Dundee United got to the final. And the same is true in the Cup Winners' Cup. But 
It's coming. Don't you worry. The Italian dominance is coming. We move on. 87, 88. The dawn of the great Milan team under Arrigo Sacchi. They win the Serie A title. That's, for my money, the best team ever assembled. Back to front, side to side. It was simply sensational. Milan win the title. Napoli finish second. Roma third. Sampdoria fourth. Inter fifth. Juve sixth. Then Torino and Fiorentina seventh and eighth. Avellino and Empoli are relegated to Serie B. In the Coppa Italia final, Sampdoria beat Torino 3-2 in aggregate. 2-0 home win. They lose 2-1 away, but they win 3-2 in aggregate. Notable about that 3-2 away game, or sorry, 2-1 away defeat. They go into the game 2-0 up, and they score two own goals. Torino didn't score in either game. Sampdoria scored all five goals. They just happened to put two of them into their own net and needed extra time and a late goal for, from Fausto Salsano to give them the cup. 87-88, uh, nothing in the European Cup, nothing in the UEFA Cup, nothing in the Cup Winners' Cup, and on we go to the 88-89 season where Inter Milan win the Serie A title. Napoli finished second. Milan are third because their focus was elsewhere. Juventus fourth, Sampdoria fifth, Atalanta and Fiorentina in sixth and seventh. Notable, all six of those clubs, sorry, all seven of those clubs qualified for Europe. It was not just a recent thing where... There's six and seven clubs from one country getting into Europe. This was happening back then as well. Not every season, but back then it was happening. The league has now expanded to 18 teams. But Torino, Pescara, Pisa and Como are all relegated in 1989. In the Coppa Italia, Sampdoria win again. They beat Napoli 4-1 on aggregate, lost the first leg 1-0, came back and won the second leg 4-0 and eased their way into Europe the following season. In the U- European Cup that season, Milan beat Stoja Bucharest 4-0 in the European Cup final. One of the greatest performances you'll ever see in a European Cup final. Ruud Hullett with two goals, Marco van Basten with two goals. Your top scorers in the league that year, Aldo Serena with 22, Van Basten and Careca of Napoli with 19, a young Roberto Baggio with 15 for Fiorentina, Gianluca Vialli with 14 for Sampdoria, uh, Rudy Vuller with uh, 10 for Roma. European, uh, UEFA Cup that same year, Napoli beat Stuttgart 5-4 on aggregate. Took me a second to do a bit of quick maths there. Uh, 5-4 on aggregate. They win the first leg at home 2-1, having gone 1-0 down. 
Then they go to Germany. They go 1-0 up. They get pulled back. Then they go 3-1 up and get pulled back to 3-3. But they manage to hold out and they win their first European trophy. An incredible achievement by what had been, in many ways, an afterthought prior to Diego Maradona. And in the um, Cup Winners' Cup, they almost go three for three. Sampdoria get to the final, but they lose to Barcelona 2-0. Goals on the night from Salinas and Lopez give Johan Cruyff Barcelona their first taste of European silverware. Uh, Gary Lineker, a notable pl- player in that Barcelona team, and Doni Zubizarreta, uh, Luis Mia, Guillermo Amor, Julio Salinas, who I always liked, and Manchester City's current director of football, Chiki Bergerstein, also in that team. That Sampdoria team, though, when you look at the names, Gianluca Pagliuca, Marino Manini, Luca Pellegrino, Giuseppe Dosena, Gianluca Viali, and Roberto Mancini, like it's an outstanding team. But unfortunately, they just didn't have enough on the night. Into 89-90 we go, and Napoli win their second league title. This was kind of the crowning glory for Maradona because anyone can win one. Winning two is what makes you a great. Napoli win the title, two points clear of that incredible Milan team. Inter finish third, then Juve, then Sampdoria, Roma, Atalanta, Bologna. Lazio, nice of you to turn up, finish in ninth. Fiorentina finish in 12th. Genoa in 11th, actually. Uh, Udinese, Hellas Verona, Cremonese and Ascoli are relegated. Juventus win the Coppa Italia, beating AC Milan 1-0 on aggregate. Again, Milan had bigger fish to fry. We'll come to that now. In the Serie A goal-scoring charts, Marco van Basten with 19, the, um, Roberto, Man- Roberto Baggio with 17, Diego Maradona with 16, Salvadori Scalacci with 15, Rudy Voller with 14. You've got Jurgen Klinsmann there with 13, Abel Balbo, Roberto Mancini, and Lothar Mateus all knocking in 11. Of course, Mateus, a midfielder, which makes that notable. Um on to Europe. 1990 European Cup final. AC Milan versus Benfica. A Frank Reichard goal is the difference. And Milan go back to back. In the UEFA Cup, Juventus beat Fiorentina 3-1 on aggregate. 3-1 in the home game. 0-0 in the second leg. Juve lifting European silverware. And in the Cup Winners' Cup, we get a sweep. Sampdoria 2, Anderlecht 0. Goals in that final from Gianluca Viali, 2 in extra time. And we have four Italian finalists across the three European competitions and all three trophies heading back to Italy. Quite the achievement. Moving on to the... 1991 season obviously we've now had 
the incredible 1990 World Cup. And I will hear no slander ever about that World Cup. Just because there wasn't tons of goals, just because the football was more tactical and technical, that does not mean it wasn't a great World Cup. If, if for some reason you rely on pure goals to enjoy football, that's fair enough. That's absolutely fine. But there's far more layers to football than simply goals equals excitement. That World Cup is a magnificent triumph from start to finish. From the opening ceremony, from Luciano Pavarotti, the pomp, the circumstance, the stadiums, the games themselves, all the way through. The final, the final colours a lot of people's views on that World Cup because the final is a tough watch. Because the Argentines knew they were outgunned and they got frustrated. They lost their heads and they started kicking the life out of the Germans. They ended up playing with nine men. They lose to a late penalty. But the final shouldn't dictate what people think of that tournament. That tournament was incredible. Anyway, back to 1991. And Sampdoria win the league title ahead of Milan. Milan were banned from playing in Europe the following season because of an incident in a game against Marseille. So even though they finished second, they would not finish, they would not compete in Europe in the 91-92 season, which remains a bit of a scandal, to be honest. Uh, Inter finished third, Genoa fourth, Torino back in the division, they're fifth, Parma sixth, Juve seventh, Napoli eighth, Roma ninth, Atalanta tenth, Lazio eleventh, Fiorentina twelfth. Going down, we've got Lecce, Pisa, Cecina, and Bologna. Uh, top scorers, Viali with, with 19, Mateus with 16, Thomas Scaravi, um, who's one of the reasons that I decided that Genoa would be the team for me. He got 15, as did Carlos Aguilera, his strike partner in that Genoa team. Uh, Baggio, who'd moved to Juve at this point, he got 14. Jurgen Klinsmann got 14 for Inter. Inter had tried to copy the, uh, the three Dutch policy at Milan with their three Germans, and they'd gotten Klinsmann, Lothar Mateus, and Andy Bremer. Um, all great players, obviously. The issue was, so the three Dutch were Van Basten. Well, Klinsmann's a fairly good appropriation. Rijkaard. Matthias is a pretty good appropriation. They're two of the greatest midfielders to ever play the game. But then, even though Bremer was great, he was a left back. It's not the same as having Ruud Hullet. So, the three German policy, I mean, it worked to an extent. It could have worked better had the third one been a more impactful player than a left-back. Um, 91 Coppa Italia, Roma take home the trophy. They beat Sampdoria 
who'd been going for three in a row, 4-2 on aggregate. Um, Pellegrini, Bertholdt and Voller with the goals in the first leg, Voller with the goal in the second leg. Aldair scored an own goal. That was actually a really good Roma team back around the time. Uh, in Europe, this is the year that Red Star Belgrade win the European Cup on penalties, beating AC Milan. In the UEFA Cup, though, the Italians continued to go strong. Inter beat Roma uh, 2-1 on aggregate, so both Italian clubs in that final. And then in the Cupners Cup, Manchester United beat Barcelona, uh, which was the, the kind of the pre-telling of what was to come from Manchester United under under Alex Ferguson. Uh, 91-92. AC Milan reclaim their throne at the top of Serie A. They finished eight points clear of Juve. Only two points for a win back then, so eight points was massive. Uh, they go unbeaten. They only concede 21 goals in the season. Behind Juve is Torino, probably their best season, finishing third. Then Napoli, then Roma, then Sampdoria, Parma, Inter finishing down in eighth. Uh, Foggia, Lazio, Atalanta, Fiorentina, Genoa in 14th. Bari, Hellas, Verona, Cremonese and Ascoli all relegated. Um, Four up, four down in an 18-team league is tough. But it meant that the league was super competitive. In the Cup Winners' Cup, we have Juve against Parma. Juve win the first leg 1-0 through Roberto Baggio penalty. But in the second leg, Parma win 2-0 and Parma win the cup. In the European Cup that year, Barcelona beat Sampdoria. That's a replay of that Cup Winners' Cup final from a couple of years previously. But again, we have an Italian club in a European final. In the UEFA Cup, again, we're represented by an Italian club. Ajax beat Torino uh, 2-2 on our... I I said there was no great Torino season. This is probably it. They finish third in the league. They get to the UEFA Cup final. For me, it's not a great season. You didn't win anything. But by the standards that they had at this time, yeah, sure, maybe. Um, in the Cup Winners' Cup, Werder Bremen beat Monaco uh, 2-0. Moving on, 92-93. Milan, back-to-back Serie A titles under Fabio Capello, obviously. Um, ahead of Inter, Parma, Juve, Lazio, Cagliari, Atalanta, Torino, Roma, Napoli finishing in 11th, which obviously not great. Genoa in 13th. Brescia, Fiorentina, Ancona and Pescara all relegated. Uh, in the Copa Italia, Torino win the Copa Italia. They beat Roma uh, 5-5 on aggregate. Torino win on away goals. Torino won the first leg. 3-0, and then got absolutely hammered in Rome, but managed to take home the trophy. 
in the European Cup that year, actually top scorers that year in the league, uh, Beppe Signore with 26 goals for Lazio, Baggio and Abel Balbo both got 21, Ruben Sosa got 20, Batistuta and Daniel Fonseca both got 16, Roberto Mancini got 15, Jean-Pierre Papin scored 13 for Milan, as did Marco Van Basten. This, if I'm not mistaken, is the last season of Marco Van Basten's career because he hurts his ankle. Um, European Cup, Marseille beat Milan in the final. In the UEFA Cup final, Juve beat Borussia Dortmund. And in the Cup Winners' Cup final, Parma beat Antwerp. So again, Italian clubs in all of the finals. I still, to this day, no idea how Milan lost that game to Marseille. I still don't. I've watched that final eight, nine times over the years. I still don't have any earthly idea how Juve or how how Milan didn't win that game. Like, it wasn't just that they were the better team. The golfing class was enormous. Absolutely enormous. So there we go. We've had the golden age of, the, the modern golden age of Trino. Trino. Obviously, they had great success um, many decades ago. But yeah, we get a, set, a third place finish, a UEFA Cup final defeat, and then they won the Coppa Italia while finishing, where did they finish? Ninth in the league. Um, 93-94 then. Milan once again winning the title. Then he conceded 15 goals in the league. Then he scored 36 goals in the league because they didn't need to score any more than that. They just won games 1-0. Juve finished second, then Sampdoria, then Lazio, then Parma and Napoli. Roma finished seventh, Torino eighth, Foggy in ninth, Genoa are in 11th. Inter finished 13th. Uh, Piacenza, Udinese, Atalanta, and Lecce are relegated. In the Coppa Italia, Sampdoria would win it again, beating Ancona uh, 6-1 on aggregate after a 0-0 first leg. They just spanked the life out of them in the second leg. In the 93-94 European Cup final, Milan demolished Johan Cruyff's dream team. Went into the game as underdogs, missing key players, and just battered them. Absolutely destroyed them. Marcel Desailly puts on one of the great... Marcel Desailly, he might have the best Champions League final catalogue of any player. So in 92-93, he plays for Marseille against Milan. He was otherworldly. Absolutely incredible. Playing as a centre-back in a back three. Then he moves to Milan. He plays central midfield against Barca. And he just bullied them. Absolutely bullied them. I would imagine that Pep Guardiola, Guillermo Amor, and Jose Marie Baccaro had nightmares about Desailly 
for months afterwards. Go and watch that final. It's on YouTube. It is a destruction by him of everything they were trying to do. Uh, Inter Milan win the UEFA Cup that year, beating Austria Salzburg, now known as Red Bull Salzburg, 2-0 in the final. Uh, Both games ended 1-1. Oh, sorry, both games ended 1-0. And then last but not least, we have the Cup Winners' Cup final, which we almost got another Italian clean sweep. But Arsenal beat Parma 1-0. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think I am. George Graham was fired that year for taking backhanders from agents and Stuart Houston. No, it was the next season. Ah, oh, I'm sorry. The next season. Arsenal would get to the final again the next year. Graham was fired. Graham, Graham was there when they won it this year. I am, I am mistaken. It was the next year Stuart Houston got them to the final. It was just a very unusual situation to have a caretaker manager uh, overseeing any kind of European final. And then it was made all the stranger by Naeem in basically the last minute of extra time uh, scoring from the halfway line. Again, the 95 Cup Winners Cup final, I'm almost certain that's on YouTube as well. A young Gus Poyet in that team. Maybe not young. What age would he have been? Because he wasn't young. Was he ever young? He was 28. How old was he when he joined Chelsea? He was 30 when he joined Chelsea. And then played in England for seven years. I always assumed he was like 25 when he came across to England. But he was 30 when he came to England. Um, Yeah. Naeem and Gus Poye make that game worthwhile. But that Arsenal team was strong. Anyway, we've gone off topic, as I always do. Back to 93-94. It is Arsenal beating Parma 1-0, the only goal of the game scored by Alan Smith. And Arsenal win their only really notable bit of European silverware. 94-95. This is where we'll leave it for today. Uh, Juventus win the Serie A title. We're up to three points for a win. So, you know, modern day. Um, this is Marcello Lippi's team. He, he had been a journeyman manager, which a lot of people seem to forget that Marcello Lippi was a journeyman manager. He'd been at Sampdoria as a youth coach. Then he'd gone Pontedera, Siena, Pistose. Calarice, Cecina, Lucchese, Atalanta, Napoli. The only club he had spent more than one year at was Cecina, where he was for two years. All of that is between 85 and 94. He has eight jobs in a nine-year span. And then he lands at Juve. Now, just imagine for a second, if you will, Manchester United, Liverpool or Arsenal appointing a journeyman who'd never coached a top club other than one year at Napoli where, let's be fair, Napoli were not what they had been. Things were a bit chaotic. The whole Maradona fallout was still kind of 
ramping through the club, the financial turmoil that they were in because of the overspending to be competitive while they had Maradona. It just seemed like a really strange appointment for Juve. And still to this day, seems like a strange appointment. But then you remember it's Italian football and strange things happen all the time. But from there, Lippi's entire career just changes. He's five great years at Juve. Goes to Inter, doesn't do very well. Goes back to Juve, does well there again. Then he takes over the Italian job and wins the World Cup. But his career could have been so different if he never gets that Juve job. Anyway, they win the league title that year. Lazio second, Parma third, Milan fourth, Roma fifth, Inter sixth, Napoli seventh, Sampdoria eighth, Gaffiorentina in tenth, Torino eleventh, Genoa relegated along with Foggia, Regina and Brescia. Just some of the names of managers here. Oscar Taberas, obviously best known for his time in charge of the Uruguayan national team, but he's there managing in Syria at Cagliari. You've got Claudio Ranieri at Fiorentina. You've got Zdenek Zeman managing Lazio, playing some of the most outrageous attacking football anywhere in Europe. You've got Fabio Capello still at Milan. Nevio Scala at Parma. You've got the great Sven Goran Eriksson at Sampdoria and obviously Marcello Lippi. Like, these are world-class managers. Ranieri, not so much, but Tiberi's world-class manager. Lippi, world-class. Zeman, I would say, maybe not world-class, but he was he was like the Bielsa of his day. Um, Vujetin uh, Boskov, who was manager of Napoli that season, he was a great manager. He was genuinely a great manager. He'd won the Serie A title with Sampdoria. He'd won two Coppa Italias there, got them to a European Cup final. He'd also, prior to that, won La Liga and the Copa del Rey with uh, with Real Madrid in a double. He'd also lost a European Cup final there. He was a great manager. So he's there as well, flying under the radar. This is this is Italian football was the mecca at this point. Everybody wanted to be there, players, managers, whoever. In the Coppa Italia that year, Juve would complete the double, uh, beating Parma in the final. One nil home win, two nil away win, comfortable three nil win on aggregate. In the European Cup final, Ajax beat Milan one nil. So again. You've got an Italian club in that final. In the UEFA Cup, Parma beat Juve 2-1 on aggregate. Juve came very close to the treble. That is six out of seven years that Italian clubs have now won the UEFA Cup. In all seven years, there's been at least one Italian club in the final. And in three years, in seven, both teams in the final have been Italian. That's incredible. 
In the Cup Winners Cup that year, like I said earlier, Saragossa beat uh, beat Arsenal. But let's look at that run then. So 85 to 95 is what we've basically done. <coughs> In the Cup Winners Cup, we have two Italian winners and two Italian losers. It's pretty good. It's better than they'd been doing prior to this run. In fact, prior to this run, Juve had won it in 84. Milan had been beaten finalists in 74. Milan had won it in 73. Milan had won it as well in 78. Sorry, 68. And Fiorentina had lost. Sorry, Fiorentina had won it in 61 and then lost the final in 62. So in... 23 years, that's what we had. One, two, three victories, four victories, and one, two, two losing finalists. Yeah, four victories and two losing finalists. In 10 years, we get two victories and two losing finalists. So... Things definitely on the up. Um, UEFA Cup is where they really did dominate. Like I said, you get six wins in seven years and four losing finalists. That's pretty impressive. Prior to that run, Juve had won it in 77. No other Italian club had ever been to the final. So, incredible dominance of the UEFA Cup. And then in the European Cup, you get three winners and three finalists, three beaten finalists. Now, starting with the next season that we'll do 95-96, we get a fourth winner as Italian clubs continue to get to the final on a pretty regular basis. But this era... This was the Milan era. Three wins and two finals defeats. Like, they really should have won five European Cups in this spell. They were a better team than Marseille. I take No, I take that back. They should have won four. It's very hard to take that away from Ajax, especially when you look at that year's European Cup. You go back and you look at the group stage and Ajax play Milan and beat them twice. So, yeah, tough to say that Milan should have won that final, but they certainly should have beaten Marseille and they did win the three others. You've got the league titles spread out with... Juve winning, Milan winning a bunch, obviously. Inter win one, Sampdoria win one. It's not just one team being dominant. The Coppa Italia, obviously, a, a wide range of um, a wide range of winners in the Coppa Italia, which at that point was probably a little bit more a little bit more prestigious than it is now. But you get Roma winning it, Napoli. Two for Sampdoria, Juve, Roma again, Parma, Torino, another for Sampdoria, and Juve. 
Again, there's no incredible dominance by one club. It is spread out. And we're getting different teams as the losing finalists those years as well. So this is a league that was just super strong. Incredible players in, in that, that final season that I've done, 94-95. Badastuda scores 22, 26 goals. Um, Abel Balbo gets 22. Rogerio Rizzatelli, does anyone remember him? He scored 19 goals that year. Gianfranco Zola got seven, got 19. Signore got 17. Marco Simone got 17. Sandro Tovaleri of Bari got 17. Gianluca Viali got 17. Fabrizio Ravanelli got 15. And Enrico Chiesa got 14. Most years you look at the top goal scorers and it's all you know, it's the same names most years. But then you get someone like Rizzatelli here, nicknamed Rizzy Goal by the fans. Kind of made his name at Roma. He never was, judging by his career goal numbers, a prolific goal scorer. Like, he played for Roma for six years, scored 29 goals. He goes to Torino, and he scores 30 goals in two seasons. And earned a move to Bayern Munich, of all places. Didn't quite make the grade at Bayern. You look at Tovaleri, another one, another journeyman. But every so often, he, you, you just get one of these players would catch fire in a season. And you remember names like Igor Prati. And what an outstanding player he was. And the goals that he would score. And I'm sure as we go on through the 90s tomorrow, there'll be more and more names that pop up where you go, oh, yeah, do you remember him? Like a name that's just popped into my head is Dario Hubner. Another one that just had a couple of seasons where it all clicked for him in the top flight, playing for a lesser team. But he would just score goals. Him and Prati are the two that generally stand out to me in that regard. Like you look at their careers, and with with Prati plays for Romini, Laverno, a name I can't say, Messina, Barry, one season with Lazio, one season with Napoli, Reggiana, and Laverno. Scores for fun with Laverno, does scores pretty regularly with Barry, pretty regularly with Messina. Just couldn't do it at the top clubs. Hubner never got the move to a big club, which I always found a little bit strange. He was a little bit of a late bloomer, but, you know, scored for fun with Cecina, scored for fun with Brescia, scored for fun with Piacenza. Just never got that move to a big club. Dario Hubner and Igor Prati are the only players to have won the Golden Boot in Syria, Syria B, and Syria C. That's pretty impressive. It's just these. That just you just have memories of these great goal scorers that just it didn't matter. Like Hubner plays in Syria B 
for five years. Scores 83 goals in 110 games. Moves to Brescia. His first season playing in Serie A, 16 goals in 30 games. No problem. They get relegated. He decides to stay. He easily could have gotten a move to another. There are going to be clubs lining up to get someone that scored 16 goals in a Serie A season. But he stays at Brescia for two seasons in Serie B. Scores 21 goals in both years. Comes back up and gets 17. So he's had two seasons in Serie A. 16 goals, 17 goals. Back then, that was a lot. Moves to Piacenza in Serie A. Scores 24 goals. Second season, he gets 14, but only plays 27 games. And then that's kind of it. His career just kind of peters off after that. Whether it was injuries or, or what, I don't know. He was 30... He was 35 by that point. Like I said, late bloomer. Like when he got his first season in Serie A, he was already 30. But there would have been clubs lining up to sign him, and he didn't. Didn't go to any top club. Cecina, Brescia, Piacenza. He was happy out. Scored goals and harassed defenders. But there's just... It's it's not just the star names from this era in Serie A. It's not just your, you know, Signores and Badastutas and Baggios and whoever. It's it's guys like Igor Prati. It's guys like Dario Hupner that really were the fabric of the league. And every so often a Premier League club would make the mistake of buying one of them and bringing them out of that... Uh, that Syria bubble and it just wouldn't work but Christ they were good in their own league we'll go to break we'll come back we'll do the gossip we'll be done see you in a sec right welcome back so uh, let's do the news uh, Leicester City footballer Hamza Chowdhury has been charged with drink driving uh, he was pulled over at one forty-five a.m last Friday morning and refused to provide a specimen of breath. He has since been charging with charged with driving while under the influence of alcohol and being over the limit. Uh, not good, Hamza, not good at all. Roy Keane has said that the Ireland, the Ireland manager's job would appeal to him. I'm just going to say no, Roy. Uh, just stick to what you're doing. Thanks. Uh, EFL confirms that the two-legged semi-finals will stay in the EFL Cup for at least next year. And I hope that stays the same. I really do hope that stays the same. I do not want the EFL to lose the two-legged semi-finals. Uh, Anthony Martial is set to be out for up to 10 weeks with a Groin injury. He has had successful groin surgery. Hasn't played since November. The, sorry, December the 9th. Uh, he is expected to be out now until April. And obviously his contract expires in the summer. What an unmitigated disaster that transfer has been for Manchester United. We have some sackings. Ivory Coast have sacked their manager, Jean-Louis Jean Gasset. Uh, after their 4-0 defeat by Equatorial Guinea. It was the heaviest home defeat in Ivory Coast history. 
and they are the first host to lose two group games since they did it themselves in 1984. The Elephants still carry faint hopes of progressing to the last 16 of what, as one of the third-place teams. But yeah, it doesn't look good for them. Uh, it doesn't look good at all. Ghana have also made a managerial change. They've sacked Chris Hutton. Um, he hasn't done very well there. He really hasn't done very well there. They, they've done a lot to get him to take that job. He first joined as a technical advisor after he was fired by Nottingham Forest. And um, then he stepped into the manager's role after the World Cup. But obviously he has not done well and he has now been dismissed from his job. Um, what else do we have here? Abdelay Sime of, well, Brighton, but playing for Rangers on loan. And Senegal, he's out long-term after suffering a thigh injury. He's been in great form this season for Rangers. So that's going to be a massive, massive blow for them. I'll try not to feel too sorry for them. Um, would imagine Algeria will probably make a change as well, having been dumped out in the groups. Um, they were one of the favourites to win the competition. Um, it's the second time in a row they've gone out in the group stage. So I wouldn't be surprised if we hear that they've made a managerial change. Um Maurizio Pochettino was desperate for his first trophy in England. There's a documentary about Pep Guardiola called Chasing the Money. Oh, no, sorry, Chasing Perfection is what it's called. But, you know, we all know what the what the reality of the situation is. Uh, let's just do the gossip. Al Nazir are lining up an audacious bid for Casemiro and Aaron Wan-Bissaka. I just don't see Juan Bissaka going to Saudi at 26 years of age. Al Nazir have already had a £20 million bid turned down by Tottenham for Emerson Real and view Juan Bissaka as a viable alternative. Uh, Victor Osman has hinted he will leave, and he's ready to leave Napoli this summer with Chelsea, Manchester United, and Real Madrid. I think Real is the perfect move. And I think. He makes more sense for Real than either Haaland or Mbappe. I genuinely do. I think he's perfect to go into that team. If they were to line up in a 4-2-3-1 with Osman up front, Bellingham behind, Valverde on the right, Vinicius on the left, Chiumeni and Camavinga as a double pivot, there's not a team that touches that. Not a team around that touches it. That is phenomenal. That is the perfect pairing of technicality and physicality. They would need additions at the back, no question. You've got Edna Militao, but you need your long-term right back. You want to keep Ferland Mendy as your defensive left back and go with an attack-minded right-back, that's probably the way to go. So maybe maybe you could get Hakimi if, if PSG were ready to move off him. 
Maybe you go and you get Jeremy Frimpong. You need one centre-back and you'll have Thibaut Courtois back as one of the best goalkeepers in the world. They need a right-back, a centre-back, and Osman up front, that team is going to be a real problem for everybody. Um, Manchester United's on-loan forward Mason Greenwood is edging closer to a summer switch to Barcelona after starring for Atafe. I don't believe that to be true. Nottingham Forest are in talks with Borussia Dortmund over a loan deal for Giovanni Reina. That that will be boom or bust. He'll either be brilliant for them or he'll be a disaster. There's no in-between with Gio Reyna. Uh, Carlos Borges, the young winger who was at City, went to Ajax. I think he's also going to Forest on loan in this window. Roy Hodgson has been warned he could be sacked if res- results do not improve after holding talks with Steve Parrish. It, it is time to sack him, let's be fair. Uh, Jose Mourinho has rejected an offer from Saudi Pro League club Al-Shabaab to become their new manager. Napoli have agreed a loan deal with Aston Villa, which includes a non-mandatory option to buy worth €9 million Euro for Leander Dendonker. Nothing to get too excited about there. Newcastle are considering hijacking Tottenham's proposed move for Antonio Nusa. He is seen as a direct replacement for Miguel Almiron. By who? He plays on the other wing. That it that just seems like it's football insider making up spoofing. Which of our favorite spoofers is it? Wayne VC or Pete? I'm betting Pete. It is Pete. It's Peter Rourke, uh, assistant lead spoofer at footballinsider.com. Uh, Chelsea have registered their interest in signing Kareem Benzema. What do they do? Send them a note, an email, a fax? Meanwhile, Trevo Chalaba is a key target for Fulham. Hmm. Nottingham Forest are also planning a loan for Chalaba, who's recovering from a long-term hamstring injury. Trevor Chalab is really good. And someone should definitely make a move. Arnaud Danjuma is a target for Leon with Villarreal growing frustrated about his lack of playing time at Everton. Yeah, but Everton would have to give in to letting him go, and I don't think they're going to do that. Manchester United are interested in Eric Maxime, Chupa Moteng, and Marcus Edwards. They're two very different players. Um, the Old Trafford Club also lead the race for Joshua Xerxes. Newcastle are set to sign Alfie Harrison, uh, sorry, an 18-year-old English midfielder from Manchester City's academy, meant to be very talented. Sheffield United may make a move for Joe Worrell and also have registered an interest in Mason Holgate. Uh, Well, Mason Holgate's at Southampton and there's no callback option, so we'll have to wait and see. Uh, The Blades are also close to completing a £2 million deal for Ivo Gerbic, the Croatian goalkeeper at Atletico Madrid. Now, he's been an Atleti for quite a while. Um, he's been there since 2000, so only four years. He's had the one loan at Lille. He is quite highly regarded. He's a giant of a human being as well. Portland Thorns will make will pay 250000 to make Chelsea and Canada midfielder Jesse Fleming, the most expensive signing ever made by an American women's team. So congrats to her on that. 
Um, let's just see if there's anything new from David Ornstein. Ineos, a Manchester United staff told today the Glazers and Ineos have reflected on previous arrangements of football operations and the scope of Ineos' influence will in fact be broader, meaning alignment will be sought on other key business matters. Okay. Brentford have reached an agreement with Elfsberg to sign Hakan Raffin Valdemarsen, a 22-year-old Icelandic goalkeeper, very highly regarded, never seen the kid play. And that's all from Ornstein. We'll check in with Mike McGrath, see if he has anything for us at this hour. Um, No, he actually was the one that broke the news on uh, Valdemirson going to Brentford. Um, Apparently now... Carlos Borges, who goes by the name Carlos Forbes, apparently now, is also um, on the radar of Burnley. Burnley have a lot, a lot of wingers. They don't really have any need for another one. Can we take a moment and appreciate how pathetic Cristiano Ronaldo comes across where he tries to claim like he's still the best player in the world because he scored the most goals in the year playing against plumbers and school teachers while winning nothing. Um, that's their like last one. We'll check in with our good friend, the spoofer with the catchphrase and see what he has to say for himself. Um, ben Godfrey potentially going to Genoa. Potentially. Flamengo won't go for Marcus Antonio in January as Lazio can't break loan. Okay. Uh, Matthias Vigne is on his way to Brazil. The Uruguayan left back, he is going to play for Flamengo. Uh, permanent deal. Um, Borgia Iglesias to Bayer Leverkusen is a done deal. Loan with an option to buy. Seven 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 own part of Genoa, so I'm guessing that deal probably will get done. Uh, James Madison is finally back in full training. Stefano Sensi is on his way to Leicester by the looks of things. It uh, looks like it will be a permanent deal as well. Uh, Leander Dundonker, that's done. Atletico Madrid are signing Moise Keane on loan from Juve. Santiago Castro is going to Bologna. Uh, Granada are closing in, closing in on Facundo Palestri on loan. Emmanuel Dennis is gone to Watford on loan. Obviously was there before, did very well. Javi Gallon joins Real Sociedad on loan till the end of the season. No option to buy included, though, which is strange. Eintracht Frankfurt have signed John Matteo, John Matteo. Beheo 
from Angers, uh, 8 million plus add-ons. Islam Slimani. I didn't realize he was playing in Cortiba. Interesting. I had no idea that he was playing there. Kieran Trippier deal currently awful. There isn't really a Kieran Trippier deal, is there? They're just kind of negotiations. There's no deal until there's an agreement. Um, Olympiacos are closing in on the signing of Nelson Abbey from Reading. Now, he's obviously owned by Nottingham. That Olympiacos obviously owned by the same people that are owned by Nottingham Forest. So you'd imagine he probably ends up at Forest. Um, very, very talented young English under 20 defender. Atletico Madrid have completed the signing of Romanian goalkeeper Horatio Moldovan. So Ivo Gerbic leaves, he comes in. Arthur Vermeeren also on his way to Atleti, who are who are busy in this transfer window. Um West Ham and Nordlesien are now close to reaching an agreement for Ibrahim Osman. He's the next up from the Right to Dream group. I talked about him a few weeks ago um, as the next one to keep an eye on, and it looks like he's on his way to West Ham. Ghanaian player, very, very talented, exciting winger. Martin Zubimendi, Douglas Louise, and Amadou Onana, apparently Arsenal, are looking at them for the summer. Onana makes no sense. Zubimendi is the only one that actually makes sense for them. Uh, Atletico Madrid preparing formal documents for Arthur Vermeeren. That is basically our lot for today, folks. So I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.